listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Uh, nuclear policy in the 1960s and slightly impressed me with the news that there was a new affection and scholarship for effective nuclear war fighting um, in Washington, where he is, is again now. Um, but uh, in, for some 20 years, he was a professor at, uh, at Brandeis, uh, and his, his work on the American uh, presidency and continuities uh, from Truman to Obama, I think, is uh, uh, tremendous and a nice uh, brief for us all, certainly for you all, um, going into the exam period. So um, he'll chat a bit about his book, and then we'll go into other topics. We've already been discussing uh, nuclear weapons, as I said, and uh, some of us have an interest in that. And uh, the Q&A, uh, Dr. Cox, and some of you will know, will... Uh, will help chair that and I'll be around to ask awkward questions as well. Uh, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> and we can, you can do the sitting down or from the table. I think or, our, uh, actually, uh, it, it looks like it would have been good just to be around the table. <laughs> yeah, sadly we couldn't get a room with the table, but there you are. Uh, I'll close the door. Uh, but I'm, um, by the way, uh, I'm not as a... Uh, some have suspected a part of President Obama's entourage posing as a uh, think tank uh, <laughs> analyst. <laughs> so that uh, what seems like uh, it's an objective analysis is really uh, meant to butter up uh, the president. No, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm here on my own and I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to meet with students and professors who are uh, interested in the legacy of uh, President Obama, um, not simply as a, I'm interested in that not simply as an intellectual exercise. Uh, most of my work is in the think tank world rather than in academia, even when I was in academia. Most of my work has been policy oriented and uh, uh, there are all kinds of theories spinning around, uh, realism, constructivism, other kinds of isms, uh, and I've had students doing doctoral dissertations under my guidance, but those students who work with me, I have always pushed to say, well, if your analysis is so, what does this mean for policy, for U.S. policy? So that's my orientation. Uh, and. Uh, looking at uh, the legacy of President Obama uh, is uh, a matter uh, that has influence over current policy. In other words, that's what a lot of our debates as to what it's going to look like out there in the future uh, are debates that have uh, impact on current foreign policy planning. Everybody is in a sense doing that either explicitly or implicitly in their defense or criticisms of, uh, of Obama's foreign policy. Uh, now, um, uh, I admit that this is speculative, speculative futurism to a certain extent, uh, because uh, we're guessing about the future and uh, Possibly the best we can do is uh, to quote Yogi Berra, who uh, said that the future lies ahead of us. 
Well, that we know, but as social scientists, we also know that the future lies behind us, um, that what has happened up to now shapes it. My further gloss on this is that the past lies ahead of us. In other words, the meaning of what has happened unfolds uh, as we get farther from it. Uh, The meaning of uh, Obama's various initiatives and decisions uh, will be debated upon uh, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. But the meaning of those events, like the meaning of a lot of other events in world politics, takes a different shape depending upon what has happened, how things have have unfolded. Um, So, uh, again, admittedly speculative uh, and uh, in some ways impossible (laughs) to uh, predict what Obama's legacy is going to be. Uh, If one tunes in over the recent past to the American debate, you, fu- you find that uh, Obama had become increasingly unpopular. Well, this happens to most presidents in the United States. Harry Truman left office with a 25% favorability rating, which is very low. Uh, he was very unpopular at the time. Uh, the opposition party charged him with, uh, with uh, losing China. Uh, his firing of General MacArthur was very unpopular. Um, But today, uh, Truman is held up as a model by Republicans and Democrats alike for what a robust, uh, strong foreign policy ought to be. Uh, Similarly with uh, President Eisenhower. During the last part of his his tenure as president, uh, he was quite unpopular. Uh, And uh, people uh, wondered whether he was really a hands-on president, was aloof out playing golf and so on, when he should have been attempting to, uh, to uh, the details of policy. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, also has undergone a, uh, a transformation in the assessment uh, given to him by people in the policy world. Today, both Democrats as well as Republicans uh, refer to Reagan as one of the best foreign policy presidents, although uh, Reagan left office hardly popular. Uh, he uh, had uh, the uh, uh, Iran-Contra scandal uh, hanging over him. Uh, the, the left criticized him for that. Uh, the right and the hawks criticized him for a very what they thought was a very soft approach to nuclear disarmament. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, as well as the American Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, and the former influential Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, all thought that the old man was giving away the store in Reykjavik, and were glad that uh, he uh, walked out of those negotiations at the time uh, because uh, Gorbachev uh, uh, insisted that the uh, SDI be part of the disarmament negotiation. Uh, But Reagan was not popular at that time. So on the basis of popularity, uh, we can't come to very many conclusions about the legacy. The popularity can change over time. Uh, However, uh, we can say a number of things about uh, Obama at this time. 
uh, and compare uh, his, uh, his criteria for making uh, decisions, particularly with respect to the use of force, his role as commander-in-chief. We can, we can look at some of these in detail um, and uh, compare uh, what he did and how he analyzed his choices with uh, how uh, his predecessors uh, dealt with similar questions. We can even do the counterfactual of saying, well, if, uh, if uh, Ronald Reagan were president today, uh, how would he have dealt with the situations in Ukraine, uh, dealing with the Islamic State, etc. Uh, it should be pointed out, however, that part of um, uh, part of Obama's uh, unpopularity, and particularly uh, on the part of some of his supporters, has to do with um, his own uh, presentation uh, of himself as a transformative uh, uh, leader. Uh, early on, uh, his uh, speech uh, in Cairo, uh, we are all brothers and sisters. The divides uh, between religions and ideologies uh, are uh, trivial compared with what we all have in common. A very transformative approach. Uh, similarly, in uh, his discussions with Medvedev, uh, early in his tenure, uh, saying things to the effect that we're going beyond global balance of power politics. Uh, we're not going to be dealing with each other on the basis of zero-sum calculations anymore. Transformative notions. Yet now, when he's about to leave office, there is very little that we can point to uh, that measure up to those transformative aspirations which uh, he had for himself and convey uh, to the larger body politic. Uh, and he, he conveyed this particularly uh, because he, in his person, okay, could be this transformative, new global citizen, as it were. Uh, he could embody uh, East, West, North, South, uh, different religions and so on. And the genuine Obama, uh, the idealistic side of, of Barack Obama, uh, it appears to me, did really have that kind of an aspiration. Okay. Well, that aspiration, except for some, um, some uh, aspects of his policy, has not really material, have not really materialized. And he's had to make an adjustment, uh, as uh, mentioned in your blurb for the meeting here, um, his uh, aspiration to transform the world okay, uh, uh, ought to be measured against uh, the transformation of Barack Obama as president in the White House. And he was transformed, it appears to me, more than he was able to transform the world. Well, this is not new with U.S. presidents, but in Obama you see it in more of a dramatic way. Um, what I'd like to do is um, to um, concentrate on his role as commander-in-chief, uh, which has become the most controversial aspects, uh, aspect of Obama's presidency, um, to look at the criteria that uh, he uh, invoked 
in making key decisions. Uh, and uh, let's concentrate on um, three of the most controversial uh, uh, sets of decisions. Those dealing with uh, Libya, with Syria, and Ukraine. Okay. Uh, what was controlling in Obama's mind, as far as we can determine, uh, when he made certain decisions either to use force or not to use force or to have a constrained use of force. Um, we find, uh, as we look rather closely at his justifications for what he did or did not do, we find a number of criteria prevailing. Okay? Uh, one being, um, is the use of force in the present circumstance that he was that he was facing. Is the use of force justifiable? Uh, is it for self-defense? Uh, is it for necessary world order? Uh, why are we contemplating the use of force? Uh, another criterion was um, did we exhaust all other options short of the use of force? Was force truly a last resort? or not, or, the, or what was being advocated at last resort or not. Also, um, if uh, it was determined that, or if you want me to determine as president, that all other options uh, won't work, um, and therefore we're left with uh, the dominant option of employing U.S. military powers. Uh, what are the prospects that this will turn out successful? Uh, I have to be convinced of that. Um, in addition to that, uh, how is it going to be regarded, uh, not only by in the future, but how is it going to be regarded with our allies, with our friends, with our partners? Um, how is it going to be regarded by the American public, what I, the President, am doing? Do I have sufficient authority or legitimized authority to do what you are asking me to do? And what about the proportionality of the uh, effects of what we are likely to get into? Will the uh, harm of not doing anything be greater or lesser than the harm of getting involved militarily? Uh, and finally, uh, can we do what I am being asked to do, what the President is being asked to do, and yet not violate essential rules of engagement, yet not uh, violate the rules of war? Now, Obama was imposing these criteria on just about every one of the important decisions that he was asked to make. Those of you who have studied uh, just war theory will recognize that, it, that you have that here. You have essentially an imposition of just war concepts. Okay. And uh, uh, some of his advisors have revealed that. They've used the concept of just war theory in describing why Obama came to certain decisions. He hasn't called it that, but uh, that's what he was invoking. 
And uh, I would suggest to you that almost all of the major decisions about the use of force or the non-use of force since World War II by American presidents have rather strongly adhered to these set of criteria, even though they were not necessarily uh, identified as that, as well as other statespersons. These are rules of prudence uh, with respect to the use of force. Well, let's look at some of the decisions. Um, What about um, the use of force in Libya? how did that? How did what was asked of the United States and what Obama uh, approved measure up to these criteria? He was convinced uh, that there was a just cause, and that just cause was not a balance of power consideration. It wasn't an alliance consideration. It was essentially a humanitarian consideration, and this um, comes at a time when the responsibility to protect notion, R2P, is quite uh, strong uh, in his administration. Uh, one dominant carrier of that into the administration was Samantha Power, uh, who became uh, uh, his ambassador in the UN in the second administration. Another was Susan Rice, his national security advisor after Jones left. And the third one was Hillary Rodham Clinton, also, pushing Obama on responsibility to protect grounds, humanitarian grounds. We can't allow this massacre to occur in Benzaghi uh, that, uh, that uh, Gaddafi was threatening. Uh, he's going to treat everybody like rats, and so on, in, in uh, Gaddafi's rhetoric. We can't allow this to happen. Okay. Now, Obama recognized that there was a justifiable cause. Uh, They persuaded him. But that's not sufficient. These other criteria also have to be satisfied. Uh, That wasn't sufficient. Were all other uh, options uh, to prevent Gaddafi from doing that exhausted? Well, he could be convinced and was convinced that, uh, that Gaddafi was not rational, that Gaddafi was going to do what he threatened to do. Um, so there was no room for diplomacy anymore and it looked like uh, many, many, many dozens of people were going to be just brutally massacred uh, in, uh, around Benghazi but what, what about the prospect of success in establishing a no-fly zone uh, in preventing Gaddafi from massacring, massacring his, his opponents here Um, the military uh, convinced him that they could effectively do a no-fly zone, okay, they would also have to go against some of the artillery that was being brought in along the coast, but they could do that and um, Obama was careful in his uh, authorization uh, to do that and also in the uh, effort that he that, that, that a successful effort to get a UN resolution endorsing it to put very stringent limits on what the military campaign was going to do and its purposes. It was not a regime change uh, operation. 
He made that quite clear. And there were going to be no, quote, boots on the ground. That is, not only no U.S. boots, but that was not going to be even our coalition partners, the French and the British and the Saudis who were pushing the United States, particularly at this time, to become involved against Gaddafi. It wasn't going to be a military operation to push uh, Gaddafi out of power. That's not what it was going to be. And testimony before the Congress, Secretary uh, of Defense Gates also made it very clear that we do not have an objective in our military operation of pushing Gaddafi out of power, of, of making him give up power. That's not what it's going to be. And it has limits. Well, this notion of limits and of being able to constrain the operation okay, to just the establishment of a no-fly zone to protect the, uh, the Libyan citizens that, from being massacred. This did not bear up uh, in, in what uh, began to be the campaign. And also, uh, the amount of U.S. forces that were committed, air forces, cruise missiles, and so on, were much larger than uh, initially uh, he had contemplated once it started. Uh, the French talked a good game, but were not actually involved quite as much as, as they talked, and so there had to be more of a commitment of U.S. capabilities than originally thought. Okay. Uh, so that was one problem. What was not anticipated and was not really thought through was what would happen afterwards, what happened next. The, the implication was that uh, Gaddafi would be stalled in that effort and would learn a lesson that if he tried to do things like that again, that he's going to get, get, get hit and get hit hard. Okay. Um, what happened, however, uh, was a surprise. It shouldn't have been, but it was. And that is, uh, as the campaign uh, and Gaddafi's opponents uh, began to become more vigorous, um, Gaddafi was driven from power and eventually massacred by his own, uh, 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 killed, assassinated by, by Libyans themselves. And then chaos descended upon Libya. Um, so there wasn't sufficient uh, 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 exploration of whether or not this operation could be successful. It seemed to Obama to pass all of the other tests, okay, uh, proportionality, it wasn't going to be anything very big. Uh, the rules of engagement were very highly constrained engagement uh, uh, of U.S. force. These all seemed to be um, uh, in conformity with the basic notion uh, of a justifiable war, a justifiable military operation. Well, the, the fact that it turned out to be a vast underestimation of the chaos that would result afterwards, uh, including, of course, the assassination of Gaddafi himself, that fact uh, was a burning realization for Obama. And Libya, more than any other uh, development in, his, uh, in the early part of his presidency, Libya became uh, the basis for his rejection of getting involved in Syria. Uh, 
particularly. Um, and he makes, it, makes that quite clear in any number of interviews, in statements, and so on, that um, uh, the presumed uh, justifiable cause uh, in, in Syria was that Assad, uh, as much as any uh, of our uh, opponents, was brutal, that he was massacring his own citizens, and evidently was also contemplating um, using chemical weapons against his opponents. And there is where Obama said, if that's my red line, he said that if that happens, if, a, if Assad is found to be moving chemical weapons uh, into a, uh, a, a condition where he's about to use them, or if he actually uses them, my calculations have changed dramatically. Uh, clear implication that the United States would use force. Now, when it happened, when Assad did use chemical weapons against uh, the citizens of, of Syria, Obama is, is compelled to change his calculations, okay? Um, because that in itself, presumably, is a sufficient and justifiable cause. Um, he didn't get into the politics of, uh, of uh, that act. In other words, what would happen politically in, in Syria. He had made statements before indicating that the uh, Arab Spring phenomenon in Syria, uh, as it grew, uh, looked like it was reaching the proportions uh, that uh, would justify uh, a uh, pressure by the United States to have Assad step aside. He made statements to that effect. But this particular operation, the crossing of the red line, you shall not use chemical weapons, this particular operation was then isolated okay, for at least a, f a few days. <laughs> While Obama made some speeches to the effect that we are preparing various kinds of military operations and uh, the uh, uh, Defense Department was ready with various kinds of operations, uh, military operations, uh, against uh, 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 Assad's forces, it was constrained by the realization, that planning was constrained by the realization that they couldn't go after the chemical uh, uh, chemicals themselves, the chemical storage facilities, or the chemical weapons themselves, because they would have spread effects. They would, uh, analogous to radioactivity, at least in a more limited way, if you hit them, then a lot of innocent people would get killed. So they were going to go after some of Assad's other military assets. And uh, everyone uh, in Obama's immediate advisory entourage, uh, foreign offices, foreign, minute, foreign uh, defense planners, and so on, were alerted that the United States was uh, preparing to engage in a military strike. Okay. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, Obama becomes a just war uh, uh, president, just war commander-in-chief. He does not feel that that operation in its effects and its impact 
is going to do anything other than have the United States now be committed, okay, in a military way to the defeat of Assad. Okay. And do we have the prospect of doing that successfully? Here he begins to get what critics said were cold feet as to whether or not uh, we could do that successfully. Uh, Obama does two things at this point. One is he um, asks for authorization from Congress. Okay. He's surprised, by the way, in, that, in, in asking for that authorization. He surprised his Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel. He surprised his Secretary of State at that time, John Kerry. Okay. Uh, he made that decision virtually on his own, consulting with some of his closer key advisors, uh, and um, surprised everybody by saying uh, Assad deserves to be punished for crossing that red line, though he didn't use the term red line. He deserves to be punished for his use of chemical weapons. Okay, But as president, I also want to bring the American people into this. And so I'm going to ask Congress to authorize that action. Knowing quite well, it appears to me, that Congress was not going to authorize that action. Uh, soundings among Democrats as well as Republicans in the Congress indicate that they didn't want to vote on, on that kind of an action. Okay. Um, and he began to be immediately very, very strongly criticized, both from with his own party and in the uh, Republican Party. Deus ex machina occurs. Uh, Putin, in some initial conversations with Kerry and then also with, with Obama, okay, uh, is told that the United States could forego its military action against... Assad's regime if the chemical weapons could be removed from Assad, Assyria. And indeed, that's what happened. Putin put pressure on Assad to remove his chemical weapons. Okay. Um, and the crisis then uh, seemed to be over. Now, uh, more than any other uh, decision or set of decisions in Obama's presidency, this reversal on his part, or what was branded as a reversal, has been the most controversial and been the most criticized for. There are some analogies in, um, in U.S. Uh, uh, crisis behavior uh, since World War II that uh, uh, it's useful to look at. Uh, Eisenhower, uh, at the time that he was being pressured to intervene on behalf of the beleaguered French uh, uh, forces in Dien Bien Phu in, uh, not in late 1953 and early 1954, Eisenhower, uh, although he had talked about falling dominoes being the consequence of allowing the French to be totally defeated in China, at the moment of truth, came to conclusions uh, that were similar to uh, these just war considerations. Okay. And in key meetings of uh, his National Security Council, 
he established conditions that would have to be satisfied for the United States to go in on behalf of the French. I mean, we're not going to go in with troops, but air support, at least, of the French garrison there at Dien Bien Phu. Um, these conditions were, one, that the British had, had to go along with us on this, had to be supportive and willing to cooperate with us on this. Uh, second, that Congress had to approve. Third, that the French had to commit themselves to really a full and complete process of self-determination on the part of the Indo-Chinese in the French colonies in Southeast Asia. Okay. Eisenhower knew full well that none of these conditions would be satisfied. Okay. But that provided him then with a justifiable basis for saying we're not going to go in. Uh, the Hawks in uh, the Eisenhower administration criticized him very much for that, but he stood his ground. Okay. Um, we can look at other uh, controversial decisions. So let me spend a little bit of time on Ukraine. Okay. Um, similar considerations prevailed in uh, Obama's uh, decision uh, to react to Putin's absorption of, the, of Crimea and uh, operations within Ukraine okay, in a carefully controlled way. Okay. Um, reacting with, uh, with rather stringent uh, economic, uh, uh, economic punishment uh, to Putin, but not in a very assertive way other than uh, to uh, go along with, in fact, uh, to, to help activate uh, the articulation of, of uh, Article uh, 5 of the NATO Treaty and that is that an attack against one of us is an attack against all of us. But other than that, what he did, in addition to economic sanctions, was symbolic at the military level to deploy uh, some uh, advisory forces into the Baltics uh, and, into the, and, and to upgrade uh, our naval presence in the Baltic Sea, okay, and to talk tough uh, against... Um, Putin. Um, very strongly criticized for this uh, by uh, the left as well as the right uh, in the United States, but all of that criticism was not usually coupled with concrete and operationalizable uh, alternatives to what he was doing. Nobody was asking for the United States to actually deploy uh, forces into those areas. Um, and uh, Obama stood his ground. On what basis did he feel that he was making the right decision? Well, in this article by Goldberg uh, that I suggested that some of you that read, uh, as well as other um, interviews that he's uh, conducted, uh, in, that he has conducted in the past year or so, or a year and a half even, uh, Obama advances the thesis that um, we don't have to and need, need not, we need not and uh, we should not uh, do anything more than we are now doing because eventually uh, the fact that 
Putin had overextended himself will come back against Putin. Okay? That he's not going to march into the Baltics. You know, it's enough that we have uh, held up uh, the uh, Article 5 of the, of the NATO treaty. It's enough that we've done that. Uh, he's deterred by that. Crimea is a fait accompli. We're not going to be able to reverse that. What happens in the Ukraine is, has been a mess. It is a mess now. Okay. Uh, we uh, can give some assistance, but we are not going to make this a civil war in Ukraine in which we are siding with uh, the Ukrainian nationalists against the pro-Soviet elements, uh, pro-Russian elements in Ukraine. That time will take care of this as it becomes evident that Obama is, uh, that, uh, that, that Putin is over, over, overextended himself in this situation. Now, a similar kind of restraint on the part of the United States was exercised at the end of George W. Bush's administration with respect to Georgia and uh, the Russian attempt uh, to solidify their control over the two uh, northern provinces of Georgia and essentially wrest them away from, uh, from the regime in Tbilisi, as well as uh, provide um, uh, some military assistance, enabling assistance to the regime, uh, to the Georgian regime. Uh, similar considerations were, uh, were uh, provided by uh, George W. Bush, uh, act, were, were constraining upon George W. Bush at that time. So we have here uh, indications in the most controversial decisions that Obama has made that he has been not simply reacting out of some kind of an emotional pacifism to these events, but has been imposing very stringent prudential criteria okay, on these decisions as to how to react to these, uh, these uh, uh, aggressive moves uh, by, uh, by Putin, and also uh, with respect to the Chinese aggressive moves in the East China Sea and the South China Sea, which I think we can maybe talk about that instead of having me uh, continue with a, a kind of a lecture about that. So I'd like to open it up for discussion, uh, and uh, let's have a free-for-all. Okay, well, thank you very much for an insightful analysis. And, um, your clear uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the... Uh, where we've come from and to understand where we're going. Um, so I'm going to, I think we'll take a couple of questions at a time, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, and then we'll go back to the room. So, we'll... yeah, okay, so we're going to take a couple. Yeah, and then... yeah, actually, I would like one at a time. One at a time? Could, because okay, what fine. happens is that uh, we all forget exactly what the questioner had asked, and uh, including myself. And don't respond, I think, appropriately to the thoughtfulness of the questions that were given. Thank you very much for this lecture. Uh, my question is about uh, the Obama's interview with the Atlantic yeah. a few months ago. He mm -hmm. criticized Turkey not to use its qualified and uh, strong army in Syria. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the United States doesn't feel, uh, I don't feel that the United States that. 
uh, it's comfortable with Saudi Arabia when it's, it intervened in Yemen. Mm -hmm. And how can we uh, combine these two? How come? Uh, how, how can we understand the United States' stance, yeah. which urged Turkey to intervene in, uh, in Syria, mm -hmm. but doesn't feel comfortable with Saudi Arabia when it, it intervened in Yemen? Yeah, at least not now. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Uh, I'm not sure that I can divine and divine uh, exactly what considerations he has. The the Turkish situation is very messy. And although we are encouraging the Turks uh, to uh, play a significant role in going after uh, ISIS or the Islamic State there, we've been very the United States has been very dissatisfied with what Turkey has been doing. Turkey has been uh, going after the Kurds as much as they have been going after uh, ISIS. And we're not sure what their, their game is. Uh, so there's a good deal of ambivalence with respect to what Turkey is doing. The Yemeni situation has been uh, disastrous in many respects from the start. Yeah. So uh, what looks like a clearer position vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, it appears to me, uh, what looks that way on the surface, uh, uh, hides a great deal of ambivalence uh, within the administration as to uh, exactly what the next step should be with respect to Turkey's uh, participation. Uh, I wasn't at the nuclear piece which was mentioned earlier on by the chair, but I'm particularly interested in the, the rationality of both nuclear and uh, chemical warfare. In, uh, you mentioned the, the red lines of Obama could you um, kind of elucidate the types of um, understanding that are play within U.S. foreign policy in relation to chemical warfare or nuclear weaponry in general? And the reason I ask that is, um, you know, historically, the U.K. and the U.S. have both used chemical weapons. And that opposition in terms of red lines raises a question in terms of what the rational basis is for that opposition. Uh, could you shed any light on that? That's hard. It's hard to shed on light on that because uh, U.S. administrations okay, with respect to chemical weapons as distinct from nuclear weapons uh, have uh, had an easier time with respect to denying the legitimacy of any use of chemical weapons when the actual effects of chemical weapons, for example, uh, are not greater than the actual effects of nuclear weapons. But uh, they have more effectively through uh, what would have to be regarded as an irrational process by way opinions are formed, that they have become more effectively uh, uh, subject to the taboo of using weapons of mass destruction than have nuclear weapons. Uh, we have not used nuclear weapons, but nuclear weapons are regarded as a legitimate uh, uh, instrument 
for deterring or if deterrence fails existential threats against the United States whereas chemical weapons are taken out of that category and indeed in um, in the uh, Obama administration's basic statements including their posture statement of um, the spring of 2010 on the, the nuclear posture, uh, the possibility that an adversary might use biological or chemical weapons is one of the reasons why the United States is not yet willing to endorse a no first use of nuclear weapons. It's one of those contingencies that the Obama administration still wants to be open about. I don't know if I've addressed your I mean, I guess, I mean, certainly that's really the only explanation that can be offered in, in a uh, periodical way, given the fact that there isn't an opposition to the weapons as such. But when you used the, uh, the statement that we haven't used nuclear weapons, what, what do you mean in that? you mean that in a, in a contemporary context? Well, haven't actually used nuclear weapons. Threatened to, use, yes. yeah. <laughs> Threatened to use, yes. Threatened to use, yes. But uh, wouldn't the fact that they've actually been used before give us a rational reason for questioning the kind of moral uproar which they seem to inspire in both the UK and the US? I mean, the UK and the US both supported their use under specified conditions. So it follows from that fact that there are circumstances in which it's considered legitimate to use them. And if there are such circumstances, what is the basis of the moral opposition? Well, to say that there are circumstances uh, which are derived from an assessment of the military power balance okay, uh, is one kind of assessment. Uh, another assessment, another kind of assessment is a moral assessment entirely and that is that um, even though there may seem to be justification on grounds of the military realities to use nuclear weapons, the anti-nuclear campaign uh, is basing its objection not on strategic grounds but on grounds that the uh, tremendous uh, killing of, of non-combatants and civilians and so on makes it immoral. And, and, and that these are different levels of discourse. Yes, I, I didn't mean amongst the anti-weapon mm. uh, mm -hmm. fraternity. I would include myself in that. Yeah. What I meant was that given the fact that they are justifiable and continue to be justifiable on that military rationality. I mean, yeah. in England we constantly hear justifications over uh -huh. Nagasaki and Hiroshima, even today. Yes. We never hear any equivocation in that justification. Uh -huh. And given that fact, it also follows that they are, in that, in that uh, terminology, in that frame, they are considered legitimate within that kind of understanding. So if they're considered legitimate in that kind of understanding, what is it that provides them with a moral opposition within that same frame? I mean, it doesn't make any sense if they're considered useful and effective and legitimate, and the same people who consider them so 
are morally overwhelmed by opposition to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it I, I, I don't. I don't feel that Obama, for example, in his um, acceptance of the uh, reasons why he, we can't move in his lifetime to a world free of nuclear weapons, okay? uh, Obama is not being, uh, uh, is, is not oblivious okay, to the moral considerations and the moral dilemmas that he is faced with. Okay? Um, and it's essentially an unresolvable moral dilemma when he says that we have, as long as nuclear weapons exist, the United States must maintain a robust nuclear arsenal okay, in order to protect our friends and allies okay, and in order to discourage their, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. These seem, these seem to be in contradiction in the same person, in the same president. And he would be the first to admit, okay, that that is a profound moral dilemma. Uh, so you're, I don't know whether we can ask him to go farther than that at the present time. The more likely. The more likely chances of a Clinton presidency than any sensationist Trump presidency. Yeah. Well, I think in matters of foreign policy, a Clinton presidency would be essentially a carrying forward of the Obama foreign policy. It wouldn't be very different, it appears to me. There were some differences. Um, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was more hawkish with respect to Syria, thought the United States should have got in earlier uh, with more tangible assistance uh, to the, quote, moderate uh, anti-Assad forces. Uh, she also was uh, more ready to get involved in Libya than, than he was. Uh, she has been more openly critical of China on human rights grounds than the president has been. Uh, similarly, uh, even uh, uh, more openly critical of the Putin regime in Russia for its shortfalls on uh, freedom of information and so on. Uh, so you, you would have some differences, it appears to me, in emphasis and nuance, but basically the same, uh, a continuation of the same policies uh, under Hillary Clinton. Of course, if either Trump or Cruz got elected, uh, on the side of the Republicans, then we would have a, a very, very different and traumatic, it appears to me, uh, experience, which uh, I would not hesitate under, uh, if it were under Trump, to call isolationism, okay? uh, despite some of his tough talk. Under Cruz, it would be a, a strange combination of isolationism with respect to all of the other instruments of policy other than force, but a very aggressive approach with respect to unleashing U.S. military force. So that, it w uh, that would be a problem for us, for England, for all of your countries. <laughs> well, we're worried about cruise missiles. Yeah. Um, 
Are you okay to take a few more questions? I've been speaking for quite a while. Are you okay to take a few oh, yeah, more? Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit embarrassed because I arrived very late, unfortunately. But uh, you might have already covered it about uh, Obama's long interview in Atlantis. Yes. About Obama doctrine. Yes. And in the center of it is about my country, Iran. Yes. And we see that some part of uh, the Iran deal is falling apart. Yes. Both in the rhetoric of the presidential uh, candidates. And I want to know, in your opinion, how much of it is just rhetoric and how much of it is rhetoric just to please American patriotism and how much of it is real threat. And also the new wave of like banter between Iran and US around missile project. Yeah? Yeah. That's why if that's so crucial to Obama's foreign policy, moving away from Middle East, leaving Middle East to mutual uh, uh, kind of disarm, uh, mutual like uh, deterrence between Saudi, Iran, and Turkey. Why he's not uh, helping enough uh, for Iran deal to become substantial? Yeah, uh, I think with respect to the Iran deal itself, uh, the administration has been, the Obama administration has been very determined to make sure that we don't weigh it with too many. Uh, effects. In other words, if it would stop Iran's development of a nuclear weapon, that's sufficient to justify it. Now, the missile tests and so on are worrisome, and the administration is worried about that. Um, they're worrisome because it suggests that although the United States is trying to make bids to Iran for a fuller rapprochement, okay, uh, with respect to activities in the in the region okay it's uh, sponsorship of Hezbollah uh, it's a role in uh, Iraq uh, it's uh, 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 somewhat unequivocal support of Assad okay these are not to be a drag on uh, the uh, nuclear agreement with with Iran and the United States officially is trying to communicate that to Iran, but, but without giving up uh, its other pressures on Iran. I think the relationship is very uneasy. <laughs> it's, ver it's fraught with all kinds of difficulties, and, but the, the, the sine qua non of the value of the relationship with Iran is that it is preventing, or at least very, very substantially retarding, uh, Iran's development of a nuclear capability. The other issues with Iran uh, remain. Uh, sometimes there are signs that they might be subject to a bit of rapprochement, somewhat of a detente, but they haven't really reached that, that stage, it appears to me. Oh, uh, by the way, though, uh, the, the emphasis in the Goldberg article, the, uh, uh, the Obama Doctrine, um, that Goldberg attributes to, to Obama of making a full pivot to the Asia-Pacific theater and essentially leaving the Middle East to its own devices, I thought was overdone. I th yeah, I, and uh, I've been waiting for Obama to clarify that a little bit. 
that the Middle East is still of great strategic importance. What happens there is not marginal to U.S. interests. Uh, Obama is insisting that the countries in the region bear more responsibility than they have for countering ISIS, for countering the Islamic State, and that they shouldn't uh, depend upon the United States becoming involved. I think that is what he's saying, but, I, but the Goldberg article appears to me, the way it was written, tends to suggest that Obama has washed his hands of the Middle East. I think that's an exaggeration. Although it has the quote from Godfather, doesn't it? Pardon? It has the quote from Godfather, doesn't it? Yeah, it still, still keeps coming back. Right. And in that regard, the, president, the, the candidate's uh, rhetoric against Iran, what do you think about that? Do you think like, someone like Cruz or Hillary would endanger the deal or would produce something like uh, additional issues? Well, I don't think Hillary will endanger the deal. I think that she would be committed to supporting it. But Cruz has indicated he'd tear it up. So uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, Are we writing off sound or something? Pardon? We're writing off Sanders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not writing. I mean, I, I think that the probabilities are very low. That uh, and uh, with respect to the nuclear deal with Iran, I don't think if Sanders did become president, low probability event that he would tear up the agreement. That he would he would still be committed to uh, to furthering the agreement. In fact, uh, Sanders ha had um, uh, not been. Uh, as unequivocal in the Middle East, a supporter of Israeli positions, as has uh, Hillary. Uh, he's been more equivocal with respect to things like the settlements uh, uh, in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and so on. You'd have, a, I think, somewhat of a different, of a different subtle shift, but nonetheless significant shift in uh, policies on the Israel-Palestinian issue. Uh, if uh, if it were Sanders, but I don't think it's going to be Sanders. Yeah. Overall, assessments of Obama's administration shows that Obama's policies, domestically, mm -hmm. to an extent, were successful, but foreign policies everywhere was unsuccessful. He was considered being unrealistic. Mm -hmm. One of the one of his uh, foreign policies, which has proved unsuccessful, mm -hmm. is his foreign policy in regards to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, in regards to Afghanistan, it's I would use the word really it's actually intimidating what policies he actually implemented in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, in what respect, the use of drones? Do you think? Uh, no. What, no, what respect has it been? Policies of uh, peace negotiation with the Taliban. Well. United States and pulling out the troops. Yeah. And today, Taliban controls large territories in Afghanistan mm -hmm. before then, 2011. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it's a total mess within Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and it's really worrisome. Mm -hmm. Whether it's it's the peace negotiation with the Taliban, pull out of the troop, insecurity, economical problems, and half a million middle class mm -hmm. Afghans leaving Afghanistan mm -hmm. to Europe, mainly Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's. Yeah. Actually, I'm from Afghanistan, yeah. but I see, for me personally, it's intimidating. Yeah. Well, if I, were, if, if I were a spokesperson for the administration to defend what they've done in Afghanistan, I would say that the United States as an external power for what was going on in Afghanistan has done just about everything it could be expected to do. Uh, do the, uh, did the Afghan people want the Taliban to stay in power? No. 
they ex accepted that they were uh, kicked out of Kabul. Uh, do they want the United States for the longest war in its history to persist in the fight against a resurgent Taliban? Okay, is that what is bothering the Afghan people? Because that, uh, if you were a part of the administration, say the, the United States has indicated from the first, okay, that we were going to Afghanize the war and we were not going to be the ones who are dependent upon to do it. The uh, principal uh, uh, excuses which you might have of the, of the Obama administration for why things haven't worked out that well have less to do with what's ha what was happening on the, on, the, on the ground militarily than the failure of responsible and uncorrupt governance uh, in Kabul and in the relations with the other areas. So what you are blaming Obama for, okay, if I were a spokesman for the administration, I would say it's the Afghan people's uh, war. We did what we could. We stuck it out as long as we could. And we even, uh, although Obama said he was going to get us out of both wars, initially he even increased uh, the force levels uh, in Afghanistan. And we are doing everything that we can to enable them, to enable their own forces to conduct the war against the Taliban with respect to negotiations with the Taliban. I mean, uh, has the United States really been out in front of Karzai on that and other Afghans with respect to possibilities of negotiation? We have not been out in front. This has been essentially something that's been going on by uh, the, uh, the Afghans themselves. So you are blaming the unsatisfactory outcome okay, on the United States. Uh, now it's very different of course, you know, in Iraq one could say, and, and a lot of Americans did say, that it was a mistake for us to do a regime change operation there. The Afghan people are not saying it was a mistake for us to do a regime change operation. So, in, but what they are saying is you, you haven't done enough. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I think there are, there's obviously a dialogue here that has to go on. But to an extent, Afghan believe, believe that peace negotiation is implemented on They actually don't want peace negotiation to happen. Well, my understanding is that the Afghan, uh, 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 responsible Afghan uh, authorities are divided among themselves over this issue. And the United States has not been pushing uh, a peace negotiation with the Taliban. That, that has not been a U.S. position. Will there be any change in regards to Afghan policy, U.S. foreign policy on Afghanistan after, for the next president of the United States? Oh. That's very hard to say because, again, it depends, as we were saying earlier, uh, if it is Trump, I think Trump will want to get out as quickly as possible. I think there will be an isolationist response if Trump is... If, if it's Cruz, uh, then I think that what you will have is you will have isolationism with respect to the other aspects of what is needed in Afghanistan. That is continued economic development, uh, 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 sympathetic but nonetheless critical approaches toward problems of building governance, okay? You won't have that. All you will have under 
under Cruz is military operations. I don't think there will be boots on the ground, but I think there will be unrestrained military operations. And the limited rules of engagement that the Obama administration has tried to adhere to with respect to aerial attacks, okay, on al-Qaeda positions, on, uh, on uh, now uh, other positions such as ISIS positions, the limited rules of engagement which occasionally have gone wrong, those would be thrown away under a Cruz administration or even under a Trump administration. I think that uh, would be disastrous. Okay, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Yes, um, one way of looking at political systems is to see the office as more powerful than the office holder. Now, if there's any uh, truth in that respect, and you were looking into your crystal ball in a few years' time and say Donald Trump or any of the other mm -hmm. candidates were to be elected, do you think there would be a fundamental change mm -hmm. in America as we see it today? Yeah. The very very uh, useful kind of, uh, of a statement that, that you just made because um, there is, once in the Oval Office, there is upon the incumbent of the Oval Office a different perspective. You are in that position representing the interests of the whole country. You are no longer simply trying to satisfy those who elected you. So I think that there is some sliver <laughs> of hope that even under a Trump administration, if it occurred, that Trump's bellicosity, Trump's simplicities, Trump's incoherence would be subject to correction okay, uh, by informed uh, experts that he would have to recruit just like any president would have to recruit. Uh, the changes in US uh, policies since World War II that one would expect if you only looked at the rhetoric of candidates during the presidential campaigns. Uh, those changes have not really materialized. Eisenhower was going to, uh, time for a change, more bang for a buck, okay? Massive retaliation rather than relying on local forces and so on. What happened when he was president? Not really much change once he became president. Uh, in strategic posture, in the amount of money that was allocated to uh, defense establishment, in having a across-the-board uh, capability, a full spectrum of capabilities uh, uh, once he got elected. Uh, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> okay, uh, was going to uh, put the United States back in the business again of uh, confronting the Soviets in what uh, uh, Reagan's advisors called a full court press, okay? We're gonna confront them at every level, at the level of propaganda and rhetoric, uh, isolate them, not, not, allow, not have our European allies trade with the Soviet Union, I mean, with the Soviet Union, not do that. Uh, 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 substantially increase the U.S. defense budget. Uh, in fact, uh, I forgot what it was, but it wasn't at about 7% uh, of, of, of uh, GNP uh, that he asked Weinberger to be ready to implement even before Weinberger worked out uh, the planning factors with respect to what projects would, gain, would get this new money. In other words, we were going to stand tough and tall against 
against the, the Soviets. And yet, uh, uh, and he would give that priority even over uh, supply-side economics, which would require him to very substantially restrict uh, the, the U.S. Uh, budget. Uh, uh, what happens to, uh, to uh, Reagan, okay, is that he becomes an arms controller, whereas previously he said we couldn't even deal with these people, the Lenins, they lie, they cheat, and so on. Why do you want any kind of agreement with them? He becomes an arms controller. He becomes uh, an implementer of the detente relationship. More than any other president, he is regarded as responsible for helping bring the Cold War to an end. At Reykjavik, he was willing to consider with uh, Gorbachev a full nuclear disarmament. <laughs> this was uh, uh, the person who campaigned against Carter as being much too soft in dealing with the adversaries and so on. So in uh, presidency after presidency, uh, there is a convergence toward a more uh, rational, national interest oriented uh, concept uh, that uh, contradicts what one would have expected if only one listened to the rhetoric. Could we expect that from a Trump presidency? I don't know. He is uh, a, a very different phenomenon from any of the uh, the uh, prominent politicians that we've had in the United States uh, in my lifetime. Uh, but yet, uh, from the Oval Office, you know, it could be that there is uh, a more rational uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, presiding. I couldn't find the less rational. Okay, um, shall we bring proceedings? To a close here, um, I'd like to thank you on behalf, on behalf of the CISD and SOAS for coming to speak to us. I know I found it fascinating, I'm sure everybody else has as well, and I think, can you join me in thanking him? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm groping for uh, some of these um, uh, answers to the questions that I posed at the beginning. Uh, I don't feel that I've worked them out completely, so I appreciate this opportunity, but I'm reminded um, of uh, a situation in which I was uh, giving a talk somewhat similar to this. Uh, and uh, one of my students came up afterwards, all bright-eyed, and said, Professor Brown, your presentation was absolutely superfluous. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, well, well thank you. <laughs> and then he said, and you're going to publish it, I hope. And I said, well, after what you said, I think maybe I should publish it posthumously. <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, and I hope that will be real soon. <laughs> <laughs> This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>